Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to The Napoleonicist. I've had a cracking half hour before we've even started recording. We've just been having a chat and a giggle um, about various things, uh, more of which will become apparent over the course of this interview. We're talking about Waterloo tourism today, both historic and contemporary, as we gear up for a series of features looking at the Battle of Waterloo, slash La Bataille de la Belle Alliance, slash whatever you want to call it, because everyone's got a different name for the wretched thing. I am joined by two brilliant people who have been on the show before. I have Gareth Glover with me, who, frankly, if you don't know about the works of Gareth Glover, you've been living under a rock um, and haven't even tried to read a book relating to this period. Let's focus on Waterloo content, shall we? The I don't even know how many volumes it is now of the of the Waterloo archive I think it's something like 20 but I've lost count I wish I had them all I just keep picking them up when I see them um to say nothing of uh, Waterloo in 100 objects uh, Waterloo myth and reality which if you're ever going to read a single volume on Waterloo uh, and you want to blow apart some certain things related to the battle go read that Gareth great to see you again how are you doing I'm fine thank you very much and thank you for the intro that's all right. Um, I'm hoping that my check for the advertising will be in the post in due <laughs> Absolutely. course. Uh, that is a joke, people. I don't take commissions for people to appear on this podcast, um, mainly because nobody would pay me if I tried to. Um, but I'm also joined by Christine Hughes-Patrone. Christine was on a little while back because I was waxing lyrical about her book, Waterloo Witnesses, which is just brilliant. Uh, I, I sang high praises for Gareth's book just now, but in terms of taking the civilian perspective and thrusting that front and center of the narrative, which is something that has been utterly neglected until very recently, it's peerless. So people, for all that I laud Gareth's works, just go and buy the book. Seriously, it's, it's published by Pen and Sword. 
there will probably be a link in the description or something. It's a fantastic read. Christine, great to see you. Welcome back. How are you doing? I'm fine. All the better for seeing you and Gareth. Oh, such charm. <laughs> Two of my favorite men. I, I wasn't expecting that um, when I when I hit the record button, but there we go. We're, we'll we'll take the the compliments, won't we, Gareth? Um, right. So why are we here? Well, Christine and Gareth have paired up to do some touring, and specifically touring of Waterloo. There are going to be details about this both later on in the episode and in the show description. So underneath wherever you're viewing this, there will be a descriptor. There'll be a link within that where you can click through to find out all about their tour. This is quite an exciting partnership because as I've just said, you've got Gareth who's done all of this stuff about the soldier experience, myth and reality. And then you've got Christine who intimately understands the civilian perspective. So you put the two together and you've got a complete appreciation, not just of the military facet, but also of the society element as well, which kind of interlinks and often gets pushed to the side. So we'll talk about USPs and so on in due course, but this being the Napoleonicist and being history, I want to talk about trips to the Waterloo battlefield up until now, first of all. So we'll start delving into the history and the obvious place to start is a certain trip to the area that went on to be key to the reason that we had a battle at Waterloo in the first place. You know, that decision to fight there to defend Brussels. What do we know about Wellington's surveying of the land prior to the 18th of June? Because if I've got this right, he's there more than once. He certainly is. Um, well, basically, the, the main uh, visit is in August 1814. We can actually find him. Um, General Clinton actually mentions him actually picking out the battlefield at Waterloo, uh, amongst others. Um, he does visit a number of times and, in fact, is mentioned again, having been there a week or so before Waterloo happened. So he was regularly looking at possibilities, uh, although there were other sites he looked at as well, because clearly it wasn't clear that that was going to be his choice of ground. He may not have that choice. Completely. I mean, this is the point, isn't it, that part of the reason that the Waterloo position works is because Napoleon's in that vicinity and hasn't you know kind of gone for Mons and then, and then tried something of an outflanking maneuver you know standing at the Mont Saint-Jean position would have made no sense whatsoever if Napoleon had thrust towards Ghent for example. Um, let's, let's talk about some of those other positions though what do we know about other places that he was considering? From Wellington himself you don't get masses of information unfortunately, which would be great if we did. Um, you get hints from other people. One of the great sources for this is actually uh, an artilleryman, Fraser, uh, spelt with a Z, uh, who actually writes a number of letters at this time uh, during the, the actual operations. So they're actually brilliant for giving us up-to-date understanding of what's going on. And he mentions specifically a, a, another position uh, between Lures and Mons, which is actually to the northwest of Mons, uh, which was clearly to actually cover that possibility of a, a movement more to the west, uh, which is really where Wellington expected things to happen. Um, there are also hints that, of a position just to the south of Nivelle, which was, of course, his original position for sort of getting his troops together in the situation that actually arose on the 15th and 16th of June. 
Yeah, and it's worth saying that that position absolutely is not capture bra um, no. by any sense of a sense of the, of the imagination. Um, we could kind of go down the rabbit hole of, of why you know Novell, the Novell plan kind of falls apart, but we won't because there are there are other elements that we should look at, and one of those mm. just whilst we um, kind of pay homage to your your myth busting work. This whole thing about Wellington's position being chosen for him is complete rubbish. It's a fabrication. Am I right? Yeah, uh, yeah no question of it. Um, yeah, it only comes out in later letters that people start claiming that officers actually had something to do with it. But, you know, I mean, Christine, I'm sure you'll agree with this. Uh, Wellington did not allow other people to choose his battlefields for him on any occasion. No, no, he didn't allow them to choose much. So why would he leave the battlefield to them? Exactly, yeah, yeah. And it, it doesn't make sense that the, the position that is claimed to have actually been, you know, possible as, as well, because um, the La, La Bella Alliance Ridge, if you look to the south of that, is not particularly easily defended in comparison with the ridge that was chosen with the the, the three sets of farmhouse fortresses, if you want to call it, which was part of his whole intention to actually sort of make it a very difficult front to actually attack. So, uh, you know, yeah, what was it, interesting to me, Gareth, when I was writing the book is all the instances of what Wellington was doing mm -hmm. uh, before the Duchess of Richmond's ball, you know, and, and the big myth about the ball is that Wellington was surprised, had no idea what Napoleon was doing until, you know, Gordon or somebody ran into the ball and said, oh, my God, you know, he's he's at the gates. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Delancey and all the other ADCs and secretaries had spent the entire day getting orders out to all the regiments, putting everybody in place. Um, you know, Wellington was not surprised. No, although I would say that, you know, he was still hedging his bets. He wasn't certain that the attack was the real attack. Uh, and he still felt that there was a chance that this was actually to put him off guard while an, a real attack comes through the, the Mons Road. So he, he does make put forward orders. He starts getting the troops together, but he is not 100% certain about the you know going for it until he gets further messages to confirm that you know it really is happening um so Correct. You know, but, but i think a lot of people are under the impression that he had no idea about anything until no. the duchess of richmond's ball which is a, a huge fallacy absolutely yeah you're quite right i mean he was he was fully up to date with what was going on it, what was not certain at that point was actually how serious an attack it was where was or exactly attack. where it would take place. Mm. The yeah. inclination to just reach for the popcorn and let you two continue in this vein for the next hour and a half is <laughs> incredibly tempting. But I suppose I should do my job as uh, editor of this show and host and start steering us towards kind of the tourism element. But it's worth saying that the first visitors to the battlefield, once the battle is over, aren't tourists you know they are wives and sweethearts looking for loved ones or they're scavengers looking for loot and in fact you know we've got instances of the battle not being over and scavengers looking for loot and actually being 
horrifically wounded and killed in the process. So Look at us, poor, poor Freddie Ponsonby laying there horrifically wounded. And, you know, he, he was uh, looted, I think, two or three times before they took him off the field. And the, the last person who came, he said, you know what? I, I have nothing left. So you might as well just go on your way because I have nothing more to give you. And what's interesting about Freddie Ponsonby is Gareth knows I have a soft spot for old Freddie, um, who, by the way, was Caroline Lamb's brother. Um, at one point, he's still out in the field. It's the next day. And a French officer comes up to him. And he says to the French officer, you know, I'm one of Wellington's men. If you, you know, if you could send word to him that I'm here, they'll come and get me. And he says, well, you know, the Frenchman says, well, I have to worry about my wounded first, but I'll try to get word to him. And here, have some brandy and puts, a, you know, a jacket under his head and tries to make him as comfortable as possible. Decades later, they happen to be at the same party. And they start talking about their wartime reminiscences and, you know, what happened to me, what happened to you. And it turns out it's the Frenchman who gave him so much comfort on the day after the battle. So how serendipitous is that? Absolutely. You know this story, right, Gareth? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, as you say, I mean, it's a, a famous incident and obviously, obviously it was written up numerous times. Um, but for the average soldier on the battlefield, it was not perhaps such a nice time. I mean, because officers yeah. got a little bit better treatment, should we say. Your average soldier was more likely to have his throat cut so they could actually take his, whatever valuables he had. Um, and a number probably did have that happen to them. Um, it was a very brutal night, should we say. Um, and obviously the whole issue of trying to get these thousands and thousands of wounded off the battlefield well, we know that it took up to four days for some of these people to be removed to get even to get to a hospital. Many bled to death on the field. Um, so it was pretty horrific. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, as soon as the battle was over or even before the battle was over, uh, you know, wives and loved ones were searching for their for their partners if they hadn't found them to try and find either whether they're still alive or whether they were dead and to help them if possible. Um, so, yeah, there was there was something there right from the start on both sides, you know, the both the positive side of trying to help loved ones and also those who are out there just literally to steal and take everything they possibly could and murder if necessary to do so. And there are many uh, instances also of uh, people anticipating how chaotic the battlefield was going to be with mm. the removal of the dead and wounded. And yeah. so if they buried their friend or their commander or whoever they would make a point of either marking the spot in some mm. unique way or making a map and a diagram of where it was and there's yep. several in instances of people actually being able days later to go and disinter you know the the person that they had buried and and to to bring them somewhere else. Hi, Christy. Hi, honey. You are being recorded, me. Oh, are you okay? <laughs> I'm good. How I'm are you? Oh, being recorded. Sorry. <laughs> I'm gone. Sorry, Sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs>
That's my wife, Mary, not realising that recording was going on. So... Oh, the temptation to leave Mary. that in the final cut, honestly. <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> there you have it, folks. That wasn't a failure of editorial process. That was just the beauty of recording podcasts like this. That was the beauty of Mary. Hey, absolutely. It was completely ignoring everything. I'm trying to sort of wave her to go away. <laughs> so uh, let's let's try and take it back to, um, to, to tourism and the, the history <coughs> behind this, shall we? So at what point do we see people making trips to the battlefield to observe the history? Because there's a contrast to be struck here between sheer rubbernecking, you know, something significant happened nearby, mm. let's go see what we can see versus people recognizing that there's an interest in the significance and the impact of what had actually happened there for wider history and for wider contemporary events initially. Mm. So at what point do you see that transition starting to happen? Um, I would actually say it was um, quite quick and it's quite difficult to actually split it um, because although you've got that sort of uh, initial uh, sort of range of people going there for various reasons we talked about we've also got the the tourist angle starting up pretty quickly um you've actually got sort of um people appear if appearing from london within weeks in, in fact even days sometime actually to see the place and picking up supposedly uh eyewitnesses who actually would tour them around the battlefield, etc. Um, very questionably whether they were actually eyewitnesses. Many cases, um, but certainly that that grew very quickly, and certainly within uh, another ten years at least. You know, the, uh, the earliest, uh, sorry, the latest. There was actually uh, masses of people who were actually travelling over from London on organised tours, etc. Yeah, so it was it was like a cook's tour. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It really took off very quickly and it, it very, very quickly became part of the the European tour that the, the young gentleman did. One of the places you just had to go was Waterloo. Uh, it just it went onto the list very quickly. And Edward Cotton was the was the one who started the first museum. Yes. And he had fought yeah. in the battle and he That's married right, yes. a local woman and uh, set up an inn there and he you know he hosted tours of the battlefield and he also had a waterloo museum okay. and when he died he died in somewhere around 1850 and then his niece took it over for about 20 years until her death that's Am I right in thinking he was initially buried at hougamont before being moved he was yes um, up to the the new um is it a crypt that they've got in in Brussels? I, I can't think of the right word for it. Mausoleum isn't quite the, the word I'm looking for. But... Yeah, yeah, it is. It is effectively a, a, a via. Um, but he, it, the, the whole situation with his, his burial is is very strange because he actually had he had wished in his will that he was buried there alongside Blackman, who was actually an officer in the guards who was killed at Hougoumont. Um, because in fact, in his book, he actually claims he actually saw Blackman's death, uh, which is all a bit strange because he had no reason to be there at the time. So it's and it, but he did specifically ask to be buried alongside him, which is where they were both originally until they were moved in the eighteen seventies to Avia. Let's um, let, let's talk about tours, seeing as we're there, and and one of the 
inverted commas, early-ish tour guides is none other than our Atty himself. Wellington mm. does his own tour, albeit for royalty, because, you know, that's Wellington's way. Yeah. I can imagine that the kind of fee that he would have charged for tour guiding at, at Waterloo <laughs> would have been quite substantial. Mm. Um, if he could we... have found the time. Well, yeah, I mean, there is that. Um, shall we start with the the ruined my battlefield comment before we we get to that tour? Did he actually say it? Um, was it tongue in cheek? Give us a little bit of a sense of this, because it's like so many things that Wellington is thought to have said. So much of it can be apocryphal and so much meaning gets incorrectly attributed to it that it's very hard to sift the reality from the myth. I'm going to defer to Gareth on this. Uh, he undoubtedly did not say it. Um, a certain French gentleman who actually wrote Les Miserables, you may know him, um, <laughs> actually put it in his book, uh, along with a number of other stories he'd picked up from the battlefield um, when he went there many years afterwards. Um, and he actually made this claim for Wellington, and it's completely and utterly has no foundation at all. Um, uh, because um, even if you actually go to the state of the battlefield, there's only a very small area where all that earth came from to build the mound. People have this strange idea that it completely obliterated the entire battlefield. It doesn't. It's a specific area that that, that earth was taken from. And you can actually see where that is if you look at the Gordon Monument today. Yeah, absolutely. It's worth uh, saying. And I, I, I should actually say, obviously, for, for, for those who don't know who wrote Les Miserables, uh, the chap I'm talking about is a certain Mr. Victor Hugo. Um, and as I said, he is probably, as I've written in my book, um, probably uh, responsible for more Waterloo myths than anybody else in history. Absolutely. Um, let's just deal with the, the Lion's Mound, first of all. It's six feet of earth from the area where the Lion's Mound is across the La it's, it's It's not a, a minuscule portion of the battlefield but in the grand scheme of what you're looking at it is not a, a vast section um yes it does mean no. that the sunken lane that victor hugo loves to talk about and made out as though that was the end mm -hmm. of the french cavalry charge it wasn't there's one of those myths um that's uh, mm -hmm. just complete nonsense um, so that's gone what you've got is is the second half of it the bit on the the reverse slope um yes but, but, i mean what are you you losing there okay so you're losing some of the area where the household brigade charged. You're losing the area where Omtada was killed and where his, his uh, KGL um, boys were, mm. were cut apart um, trying to retake La Haysa. Yeah. Yes, you're losing, okay, one of the areas where, um, whether the second wave of the Imperial Guard struck, but in the grand scheme mm -hmm. of things, it doesn't change. A vast amount. I can't work out the percentages, but it's not a big area. Um, yes, and then we go on no. to Victor Hugo. <laughs> so when I was out there, I was very tempted to pause by the Victor Hugo monument and record the second uh, rant of, of my trip um, about monuments mm -hmm. out there. The first being the statue of Napoleon that stands on the Allied Ridge. Um, you'll be relieved to hear that I'm not going mm -hmm. to go on to that one again. But oh, <laughs> it's, it's infuriating. It's I, I love Victor Hugo's work, cracking book blinding musical it's not a piece of history and the trouble is that it's no. become become absorbed into the history and it's infuriating like this thing that the british supposedly chucked all the bodies of the um french down a well and in fact some of the 
uh, French soldiers when they were still alive down the well. And then they excavated in yeah. what was it, the, the 70s and found a yeah, couple 70s. of animal bones. Uh, you know, it's, it's just things like this right. that, oh, that make me so angry. Um, calm, Zach, <laughs> calm. Uh, <laughs> I should reach for another cup of tea. Um, Right, so we bash Victor Hugo on the head. Let's let's stop digressing it and take it back. And Sir, to... l- listen, let's put Sir Walter Scott in there too. He's responsible for a lot too. Mm. Right, right. I think it was Wellington actually uh, had a problem with all of the amateurs, as he called them, when he was talking about all the poets and the sort of the writers that went there and actually uh, tried to sort of come up with some fantastic poem in fact i have to say most of them are pretty dreadful uh, of you know this is the poem waterloo um and you know he he scorned their attempts basically as being you know amateurish and you know really as you say as you say uh, adding to the, the myth basically more than anything else mm-hmm. but i mean one thing wellington did say about touring the battlefield mm-hmm. This we know for sure because he wrote it in a letter. Mm-hmm. Was that um, George the Fourth, who he was taking around the field, had pretty much no reaction to anything. Mm. Seemed a little bored until they went to where Paget's leg was buried, and then he bur- George the Fourth burst into tears, and that was the only enthusiasm mm. Wellington saw all day in the king. Well, this was or exactly Prince where I was going to go. Whatever yeah, he was at the like- time. This is exactly where I was going to go with it, because George, he's managed to convince himself that he was actually there at Waterloo, hasn't he? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's claimed, so he's claimed that in public mm. and at a dinner table where the Duke of Wellington was seated. Mm-hmm. But Wellington's not one to take this kind of excuse the profanity here, but utter crap. The, so, I mean, if anybody else had said it, he would have given them the most mm. withering of rebukes that you could possibly mm. imagine. So how does he kind of deal with that? Because he, it must he drive said, him absolutely mental. He said, if you say so, sir. Exactly. <laughs> Is yeah. what he said. A I mean, everybody sitting answer. at the table knew that he was a lunatic and he was never yes. there. Why go into it, you know? Yeah. A very diplomatic answer as far as I think as Wellington's <laughs> concerned. Yes. If you say so. I have to point out, mind, um, he does also say that when uh, George IV went to the actual battlefield, he actually did seriously overindulge and was actually bedridden for two days before he got himself dragged out of bed to go to the battlefield. That might have something to do with the fact that, you know, that might, might indicate partly why he didn't get much reaction on him there. He was in a terrible state. Well, he was always in a terrible state. Yeah damning commentary there from christine i love it um well you know poor wellington was at the beck and call of prinny you know every every day mm-hmm. and so he would say come down to windsor i need you come 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 to brighton come come i can't do without you mm-hmm. and poor Artie would you know ride because he he rode more than he ever rode in a carriage so he'd, he'd ride all those miles to Windsor or Brighton or wherever it was, only to find that he, you know, Prinny had taken so much laudanum and, mm. and he drank so much brandy that he was incoherent. 
and nothing got done. So he got back on his horse and went back to London. I mean, it was infuriating. Yeah. I don't think he was too happy with the fact that the Prince Regent also Frenchified the British uniforms at the time. Yes, well, he wouldn't, would he? Um, <laughs> the other thing I was going to say is, Christine, don't hold back, you know, let it all out. Let us know what you really <laughs> think about the guy. <laughs> well, you know, if you put him and Mrs. Cunningham together, they led Wellington on a merry dance for decades. So don't, don't get me started. You know how I feel about Artie. I'm always going to be at, I'm always going to have his back. Quick, Zach, drag it back to tourism. Um, <laughs> we talked about how the, the early kind of phase of it develops um, with uh, the, the British veteran that, that we just talked about. But how does it, where does it go from there? How do we kind of go from that to the situation that, we see today where people are kind of taking people out under their own steam or as part of of bigger um, initiatives and I'm, I'm not kind of asking you there to go on a, a history of, of tourism um since the the 19th century but specifically within the context of waterloo what are the kind of the shifts and the moments um does the the push to get the battlefield protected have a significance within that story you know, that that push is only recent mm. You know, there, there was a, a whole gap of time there, decades worth, where nobody really cared anymore about the Battle of Waterloo. And people weren't rushing there to see it. And so it was, in a way, forgotten and allowed to be desecrated, in my, in my opinion. We're, we're so lucky that today we still have what's left there, because it all could have gone. No, you're right. I mean, in night, you know, but... You have to you have to bear in mind and Europe had seen a terrible war in 1418. And I think that's really when Waterloo drops out of the system, because until 1914, they're writing about it constantly. It's the big war that's happened. In fact, it was known as the Great War to Victorians and Edwardians. And suddenly 1914, 18 happens and it pales into its significance. And unfortunately, then. Uh, you're quite right, Christine. It actually sort of it it gets forgotten about and trashed almost. Uh, thankfully, the only good thing that happened is in, in 1914 is the Belgians actually passed a, an act to at least uh, sort of keep the battlefield as it was in 1914, just before the war came about, ready for the 100th anniversary, which of course didn't happen because other things were happening in 1915. Um, but at least they managed to stop the rot at that point because it could have been a lot worse. Yes. Well, I, you know, I think that's fascinating too. And a lot of people don't realize that in the, in the great war, the world war one, um, it, it was a battlefield again, mm. or at, at least saw a lot of troop movement. Yes. Yeah. Can I just dig a little bit in terms of, of what you said about desecration there? Are we talking about things like, the building um, on the, the Allied left flank, um, the name's just dropped out of my head, which is deeply embarrassing, but the one on the road down to uh, Papalot and La Haye. Um, or are, are you talking about sort of other things entirely? Are we talking about, you know, people going in and, and um, sort of no, digging I, there? It's and, like, and, like and... Let's, let's take Hougamont, which was, you know, almost in a derelict state. Mm before it was, you know, taken under somebody's wing and redone. 
you know, the trees were left, nobody took care of the trees, which were, it sounds stupid, but it was so important that orchard, you know, maybe if people uh, paid more attention to it over the decades, they could have kept more of that. And it was just allowed to go to rack and ruin, right, uh, Gareth? Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. I mean, point. well, it was the problem I, I, I think you've got is the fact that they were all still working farms and working farmland and they were making agricultural decisions. Nobody was saying to them, we need to preserve this place. What they were saying was, it's your farm. You get the best living you can out of it. And they, that unfortunately allowed people to just decimate parts of the field. Um, but then again, you have to look as even, even, you know, there is questions over the Duke of Wellington's lands, which he was given a Catra Bra, which was part of the great wood there, which he allowed to have cut down for wood, for, you know, for people who were allowed to actually go ahead with licenses to cut that wood. So there, at that time, there wasn't always that same desire and understanding about trying to maintain what you had. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And arguably in relation Absolutely. to Catra that's still the case, right? Mm. Um, think about the farm that's uh, currently the, the site of a, a major redevelopment. You know, it yeah. used to have the battle scars on it. Um, it used to have actually have a, a monument embedded in, in one of the walls to the, the troops who defended it. And now yes. it's been flattened um, and they've nearly finished it's taken them a while because they were they were flattening the place when i was there in 2019 and they're mm -hmm. just finishing the building work now but that's covid for you um but it, it's a major development site um and in a, a battlefield that in many places isn't particularly picturesque mm -hmm. certainly when it comes to the crossroads itself the loss of um the farmer at catcherborough is, is a huge pity so it's it's an ongoing problem um, I wondered if when you came, when you were talking about desecration, whether we were going to sort of head down the road of the dead um, and that whole thing about the plundering of certainly Waterloo as a site for human, human bones that could then be used as, as bone fertilizer. Is there anything you want to kind of comment on in relation to that? Well, you're right. I mean, uh, but it wasn't the only battlefield of this time to get that sort of um, sort of treatment all the major battlefields of this period, Leipzig, etc., um, they suffered from this um, just carelessness, really, to, towards the dead of, of just thinking, well, you know, this is now bone matter that can be turned into fertilizer for the farms. And during the 1820s, 1830s, companies were being, you know, were paying large amounts of money to governments to actually just empty out all these mass graves to use the bone for this for this uh, sort of situation uh, there was no thought about uh, protecting the sort of uh, the, the bodies of the individuals should we say particularly the, the ordinary soldier but even some junior officers many junior officers in that battle have not got a, a memorial of any sort you know they just went into mass graves as well um, so it's not just the men, but but I say, but it's it. There is that whole thing of not understanding at that time uh, the 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 need to actually to, to remember the dead. I mean, this comes really. I mean, it starts with the, the Boer War probably for the British. Uh, start memorialising individuals, um, but certainly by 1914, we, we we all know about the Commonwealth War Graves, etc. And, um, you know, it suddenly becomes a big thing to actually memorialise virtually every single soldier on an individual um, sort of headstone. Um, 
that was a complete anathema to the you know to the sort of um, the, the to anybody to be honest of the period we're talking about um it just wasn't done yes yes great generals and certain officers would have a, a plaque put up in their local church or their family would put something up on the battlefield but that is a rarity i mean if you look at even the battlefield we've only we only know now of around about 20 uh, actual sites where somebody was buried you know even if you look at the, the high-ranking officers, there are a lot more than twenty that actually died. We don't even know where half of them are. Uh, it's 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 a completely different sort of scenario, and it's very difficult to understand that view. Uh, but clearly, when and I will bring this up now, in a sense, Zach, I don't know if you want me to go with this here, here or not. But you know, clearly there has been an issue with regard to a single skeleton, potentially somebody that I was able to actually, within a, with a reasonable amount of sort of uh, certainty, uh, sort of, you know, actually identify as a person, uh, is now on show in the, in the museum there. Uh, you know, the whole question of whether that is correct or whether it should have been perhaps a plaster cast of that, of that body instead of it actually being the real body. You know, I, I, I have not got too involved in that because I know the Belgian authorities, who I try to work with reasonably often, uh, are, you know, are very keen not to go down that road, should we say. But, you know, I, I've, I've always sort of left it as an open question I, without saying too much, should we say. Yes, it is. Um, and, you know, <laughs> cards on the table, the Polyamic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity that I co-founded last year, absolutely looked at that and went hmm okay so what's the thinking behind that and mm. obviously you know the, the stance of the charity is always that you know we respect that there are differences of opinions on on such things um i have my own very strongly held views on that and what would have been preferable um but yes the there's it's a big ethical question uh, that there mm. isn't a, a finite answer to um no. but certainly if as you, you kind of said, if those remains related to a soldier of 1914-18 or later, mm. there wouldn't have been this debate. It would have no. been without question a case that um, that individual would have been given a burial, not necessarily in a marked grave. Mm. Um, it could, he could very, there are various options that you could yep. go with there. Um, and, you know, putting a name onto a headstone isn't necessarily a necessity i know there, there's been a, a discussion about the degree of certainty but i've, I've mm. had a look at your work gareth and i i think you make a, a very compelling case there um about who it is uh, or who it may be we should mm. say absolutely um, yeah. yeah so yeah lots of kind of hedging of bets and carefully worded statements there but yes it is a big ethical issue um i have my views um mm. and it's it's been very interesting as the NRWGC has been kind of gearing itself up and mm -hmm. working out its positions and so on to read about wider work and this ongoing tension about when do you and don't you repatriate remains? When do you uh, give them back to their indigenous communities? And quite often this discussion is about indigenous communities um, mm -hmm. in former colonies and yep. um, elements of, of race kind of being factored in there. And there is no consensus. And this is one of the big challenges yeah. Um, isn't it to try and work out what should we do with these remains and whilst I could sit here and confidently state my opinion fundamentally it is just my opinion and the charity exists to try and find 
a solution yeah. rather than than yeah. just kind of sit here and, and spout my individual um stances but it's it's a huge it's a huge debate um but but thank you for for raising that because it is an, an example of this ongoing kind of question mm-hmm. about the state of modern tourism and you've bridged beautifully into where i wanted to go next which is what your take is on the modern tourist situation. And there are a few things that occur to me here. One is that having just been out to Waterloo to film for a documentary and, mm. and talking to a number of the um, heads of, of key sites out there, I'm thinking Musée Wellington, I'm thinking Mont Saint-Jean mm. Farm, for example, and talking to the, the owners and, and the managers there. Mm. Um, and Musée Wellington, I was incredibly saddened to hear that actually what they find is that most people go to Memorial 1815, to the Lion's Mound, because that's on the battlefield. Yeah. They don't then take the trip to Museo Wellington, which I think is a yeah. massive shame. And, and um, in, a, in a sense, I think it's a huge pity that some kind of shuttle service isn't run mm. to, to make that happen. And equally, you know, that's not the Anglo-centric about this, La Dernier Quartier, always an incredibly quiet site but hugely important as a place of significance. If you want to stand mm-hmm. at a place where fundamental decisions were taken, mm-hmm. those are the places to go, you know? Um, and they're hugely atmospheric places as well. So mm-hmm. I, I've waffled enormously there, apologies. But what is your sense about these different places, these sites as points of historical interest and the delicate balances that need to be struck between engagement, levels of interest, but also preservation, which is the other big challenge here. Mm. I was on a Waterloo tour maybe a decade ago and we're on the tour bus and they had taken us to practically every memorial on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing really of interest. So by the time we went to the ninth one, a friend and myself, we said, we're going to stay on the coach. You know, we've seen enough monuments at this Mm -hmm. point. And so we're, we're on the coach and I'm looking around and I, I look out the back window and I see La Belle Alliance. And I said to my friend, am I, am I crazy or is that La Belle Alliance? It is. We got out of the coach and nobody was there. Just the two of us. We went, we poked around. We looked in the courtyard, the whole thing. The organized tour leaders got back with the group on the coach and we drove away. Mm. Nobody mentioned, oh, and by the way, this building we're parked beside here is. So, I mean, I think you're going to get out of the battlefield what you put into it. You know, I can go to the beaches of Normandy and appreciate what I'm looking at, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't know because I don't have that kind of, you know, background in that world war ii arena yeah but if you're going to go i think if you're going to go to waterloo you're going to have some kind of you know interest in it you you will have studied it and you'll know the significance of certain uh landmarks and i don't think it's important for the people who go there without that level of interest but if you are then you'll seek these places out and I don't know, you know, maybe they should have, maybe there's not enough for daily tours. Maybe they should have one day a week where there is a tour bus and they mm-hmm. do take you from site mm-hmm. to site. And, 
you know, uh, explain the significance of each mm. and the, the part that they played in the battle. I, I don't know. Well, but because there isn't anything like that now, you need to either do your own research or go with a, a reputable tour company that's going to show you what you need to see and tell you why you need to see it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I have a number of views on this and I, I don't disagree with what you said at all, but I have always, always seen Waterloo as one of those places where unless you go with a very good knowledge of what you're going to see, that you come away more confused than when you arrived. Because I think that majority of what is there, and that has always been there in the past, all these different events, they, they literally just confuse you more than what you actually started with, I personally think. And I, you know, and I find the majority of people that come away from it will have only gone to the major centre. Uh, they will have maybe gone up the, the mound, which then makes it look as if Waterloo is flat, which it clearly, clearly isn't. Uh, they might go as far as Hougamont because there is a, a, a sort of a, a sort of a horse-drawn bus that will take you down there. But that's about as far as they go. Um, but I have to say, on the other side, you have to look at it and also say, well, that's partly possibly because the museums don't coordinate. Now, when you buy the museum pass at the major museum, at one time it included the Wellington Museum. It doesn't anymore. You have to buy that separately. So they're fighting against each other in a sense, because if somebody gets a pass and it says there are six museums to go to, Mont-Saint-Jean and sort of all the rest of it, the Kalu, et cetera, then they'll possibly go and have a look at these places. But if they're not on that major pass they bought at the major museum, half the people either don't know they're there or they don't think they're important and that's the end of it. Uh, and I, as you say, I think it's, it's really important. You see all these places, and particularly, as I say, with the Wellington Museum, I, I think there's as much importance in going to the chapel across the road, uh, which, you know, really brings it home to a lot of people about, you know, some of the people who are there and, you know, the numbers of young lives that got lost in this battle. Absolutely, because it's worth saying that within the, the church are a whole series of plaques. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's a lot. I was surprised when I walked in there. Yeah, um, yeah. At just how many are there and they're not exclusively to the British you've got French and crucially you know Dutch and, and Hanoverian and so on there and that's the point at which you start to appreciate yeah. the multinational narrative because that's something that I'm forever banging the drum about and it does annoy mm. me um, I won't bash my listeners ears mm. with that one again but <laughs> in order to, to get that appreciation it's a point at which that that really hits home um yes and I, i'm absolutely with you i mean my personal stance is that every time i go out there museum wellington is my first stop and you might say yeah. well that's because you're a brit and you're biased and i say no that's because if you're coming from brussels you're going to pass through waterloo anyway so it would be mad not to um yes and it's absolutely worth it um there may be more on that incoming in, in the near future actually mm. because i'm hoping to um, interview the, the the president of the museum uh, in a future episode. So there you go, listeners. A little teaser for you uh, for the future. Let's let's start talking about your tour, though. And I want to start with the personal element here. What were your experiences and reactions the first time you both went out, either individually or together? You go first. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, I had that same feeling uh, that Gareth described. It was very confusing for me because... I wasn't with anybody who could point things out to me mm. and explain it the way Gareth explains it or, or really, you know, anybody with more knowledge than I had at the time, which I'm going to say was about 15 years ago, the first time I went there. Um, and, and I just posted today on um, Facebook, a memory uh, and it's from seven years ago when I was there and it was close to midnight. And at that time, you could you could walk the battlefield whenever you wanted to. So I did it in the dead of night. And it's just, I think the biggest takeaway for most people is to look at the planes and to look at the battlefield and to look at Hugemon and, and all the other structures that are still standing there. And to just imagine the human cost of it. You know, that, that that entire area would have been filled with men and horses and weapons. And it's just monumental when you try to imagine mm. the lives that were lost and the lives that were changed forever and the memories of all those people. It doesn't matter what side they fought on. You know, they, they all did their part. And there, and it moves me to think that the people who were, you know, enemies at the time are now forever together on that battlefield. So, I mean, you know that I don't look at the battlefield the way you and Gareth do in a military point of view. So that was my takeaway that it, it the whole field is really the biggest memorial to all of those who were there and and you have to when you walk those paths and you walk those fields it's the human element that you should really keep in mind absolutely rather than what regiment was where that's my take that's extremely well said yeah um, and so i was going to say uh, i fully agree with christine i i obviously know the movements of the troops. I've actually had to write books on that subject to try and get rid of some of the myths, etc. But I really come from it from the angle of the soldiers. Uh, that's why I started looking for all these unpublished sort of uh, sort of letters and 
journals, etc., from the battlefield and started the War II Archive series, which actually, I should say, Zach, is only up to number 14. I think you mentioned up possibly 20. I think it was 14 <laughs> and, a, and an atlas. What's going on? You know, that's, that's not good <laughs> enough, Gareth. Give him another week. I know, I know. I, I do apologise. No, at the moment, I'm doing it now the the Napoleonic archive for the rest of the wars, and I think it's about time I did some peninsula stuff. So I do actually do other things in Waterloo. Um, but coming back to Waterloo now and, and this sort of situation, uh, you know, when you talk about any part of the battlefield, I don't. And, and Christine and I was over there the other the other month, just talking, you know, going through it all. And I don't spend my time going on about, oh, well, this regiment went here and this regiment went here. In, you know, that's you have to put a little bit of that in. But it's more about the personal thing. So, I mean, you know, the story of Hougamont, for me, is actually told through Private Matthew Clay. And you actually just go through the incident. And in fact, you know, he was the one that actually led me to actually discover the whole second break in it, et cetera, because I read it and thought, hang on a minute, this is not what everyone thinks he said. He's saying something completely different. So then you can talk the whole battle of Hougamont, which was in, in a sense its own little battle on his own, uh, through his eyes and sort of follow him through it and actually what went on and, and all these discoveries we've made on the back of that. And you can do that for every part of the battlefield. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, it's, it's not about just buildings and regiments and, you know, so the, the grand manoeuvring, etc. It's the personal aspect. And let's be honest, for most soldiers on that battlefield, you could see probably less than 100 yards for most of it because of the smoke and the confusion and the, everything else. Um, that was it. It was a personal battle. It was what happened to them and to the people around them. And that's all they knew. And even if they write about anything else, they didn't really know about it until afterwards. And they learned from somebody else. See, this gives a really nice indication of why... I have a particularly large amount of time for both of your works because what you've picked up on here is, is the important thing, which is the human story. And whilst there is a degree of interest in being able to say that, you know, first division was here and went in that direction and all the rest of it. And sure, people go there wanting to understand how these attacks mm -hmm. play out. It is that human factor that needs to be placed front and center of this and to remember the cost and, and the toll and the impact on human lives and the tragedy that mm -hmm. unfolded there. You know, all this thing about glory on, on battlefields is something that I struggle with quite a lot because if you're wounded, mm. if you watch your mate being hit by a cannonball, if you see somebody being cut down by uh, a cuirassier or whatever it might be, those are not moments of glory. Those are moments of tragedy. Um, and mm. I think what's come across really nicely there is that when people go on your tour, they're going to have that human element put front and center, which is the way that mm -hmm. I think it should be done. Um, and I say that as somebody who myself is sort of looking at ideas of, of tours in various locations. And to hear you mm -hmm. guys kind of place that front and center is massively reassuring. Um, and why I would encourage people to, well, to go on your every tour. Every stop that we go to on the battlefield, I've, um, I've picked out something human to say about it you know an excerpt from my book something mm -hmm. that somebody wrote or remembered to keep that human element at every point of the tour and and i think it gives it'll give the people on the tour a greater appreciation of what pe people went through 
you know, mm -hmm. whether they were terrified or wounded or victorious or whatever, their point of view. And the aftermath also. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I'll be doing something similar, but it's coming out of there somewhere. Because um, obviously there is so much of it um, that I'll just pull up a bit, whatever subject it is. Um, but the, the other thing I always think is important about tours like this, and I always say it at the start, is there are no stupid questions because people are always afraid to ask things until you sort of say that. And you think, look, I can guarantee if you're wanting to ask something, three other people are thinking it, but they won't actually dare ask the question. So please ask it and we'll deal, deal with it as it comes along. And to be honest, that's why every tour I do, as far as I'm concerned, is different because it goes off in a million different directions because of what the interests are of the people who are there and to help their understanding. There's nothing worse than somebody that just, you know, comes out with the same trite statements all the time, which doesn't really gel with the people who are there. If they're, if they're interested in different aspects, let's go down that, those rabbit holes, you know, with them and let them really enjoy it without it ruining the group thing, you know, let them all have their individual rabbit holes and go down every single one of them with them and just do that. It's not impossible to do that, particularly over a, a long tour like we're doing. And this and, is and Gareth and I are Gareth and I are looking forward to, you know, not just the tour itinerary during the day, but in the evenings after dinner, mm. we'll all be able to sit around, you know, in, in a small group and discuss all these questions and and research, because a lot of times, it, you know, there are several published authors who are going on this tour mm -hmm. and who write in that period and who are working up to, let's say, the Waterloo chapter of their book. Uh, and they have some really, um, you know, definite research questions that they need answers. And we're really looking forward to that and pointing them in the right direction for further study and, um, you know, clearing so, uh, up some aspects and just spending the, you know, the evening around a, a nice glass of Doro and discussing these things. You stick to your Doro. I'll go with the Waterloo beer. There and you what go. I, what I will say is somebody put a Waterloo beer in my hand and asked me to talk about Waterloo. Try stopping me. And this kind um, of- We really have had some good discussions and this really nicely points to the value of going with you two, you know, that value of taking a genuine expert on this period, not somebody who's, who's read a couple of books and vaguely knows their way around the key locations, but somebody who has kind of lived and breathed this period for a long period of time, as you both have. Mm. Talk us through that itinerary, though. What's the actual plan for these trips? And, you know, when are they going out as well? Well, the, the tour starts in London on September 1st. And we're going to all meet that evening at the Clarence Pub in Whitehall, uh, right across from the Horse Guards. And uh, the next day, we're going to kick off with a Wellington slash Waterloo walking tour of London. So we're going to do number four, Hamilton Place, where um, Wellington left from to go to Paris before Waterloo was even a thought in anybody's mind. We're going to do the Grenadier Pub. We're going to do Apsley House, Horse Guards Museum. Um, 
And then from that point on, next day we get on the Eurostar and we go across to Brussels. And then I'm, I'm gonna leave that end of it to Gareth because he's the, the one who'll be leading the, the battlefield tours. You didn't tell me that. I thought you were gonna say something. I'm sure you oh, will. About the <laughs> battlefield? I don't oh, think I'll, I'll be able, I don't I'll think I'll be able lot, to keep but it won't quiet. be military. Yeah, well, no, I agree, but I don't think I'll be able to keep you quiet for four and a half days. There's no way, Christine. But no. I'm, I'm no guessing, way. I'm guessing Christine's going to say. Neither would I want to. Yeah, I'm guessing Christine's going to say more than this is where some fighty stuff happened, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah, there was like horses and a couple of guns and there was a lot of smoke. And over to you, Gareth. Yeah, some bangy stuff, and and that's that's it. You know, you know, you know what's interesting is occasionally fiction authors will get in touch with me and say, mm. "Hey, you know, I, I'm looking to to put this in my water. Could this possibly have happened?" Mm. And I'm sure Gareth will agree with me. Anything could have happened mm. on that battlefield. Yeah. You had people who were, you know, just there for the show. You had people who um, somehow got separated from their regiments. Mm -hmm. You had, I mean, the stuff that was going on was incredible. Anything mm -hmm. went. And th that's the kind of um, points that uh, Gareth and I want to bring up. You know, not just the strictly tactical things, no. but the kind of confusion and and, you know, the blockage on the roads and really paint a picture of what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll even disagree at times. Never. <laughs> that's why we have Mary, the referee. Oh, that's true. Yes. 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 Mary, my wife will be there as well as a help, as a help, as we say. But um, what I would say as well, you know, obviously going into the, the battlefield here, we obviously will do them all. We'll do, uh, all the major museums will do Catrebra, will do Ligny as well for one day. Um, but obviously the major thing is Waterloo. We'll do all, all the, the other bits and pieces, but then it'll culminate, as far as I'm concerned, with the most important day of the lot. Sorry, Christine, is actually the walking the battlefield day. Because until oh, you walk the battlefield, you don't really get to feel it. Um, you know, it's, it's something that I did a few times previously, um, but had to do in 2013, ready for the um, sort of my book coming out uh, for the anniversary, the children's anniversary. And I discovered so much more new stuff that I hadn't even realized myself until then, just by walking around for three days. Um, and yes, we're not doing it for three days, but I can now go to the major points and actually, you know, sort of identify these things and you can really see how this really is undulating country and has huge dips and sort of heights and everything else which you don't expect to get um because it, it's portrayed almost like a as a, like almost like it was a billiard table which it certainly is not um and you know it, it has a major effect on lots of things that happen in that day on that day um and i, I just find it fascinating and I, I i find that most people that do walk around it um, do really get a, a real feel for it after that. And you, obviously you still bring in all these other bits and pieces about localities and people and what they sort of, what happened to them at those points. But, you know, so I, I, I do feel that is almost that final day 
before we go back is that day when it all will click into place. I'm absolutely certain of it. Absolutely. And it's worth, it's worth saying that, you know, multiple trips out there are actually needed to get that level of understanding of the ground. Um, and mm. for me, having been out there twice now, I'm, I'm picking up things and, and noticing things that I didn't pick up the first time. And I'm sure that will be the case on the third and the fourth and the fifth visit out there that, you know, unless you've got somebody who's really kind of familiar with this ground, you keep actually making new discoveries and so on. And, and that's you know, part of the fun of it. Um, so this is going to be incredibly exciting. Um, obviously, you're doing it properly. That's, that's the important thing to say here. You know, you're doing Kachabat, Ligny, and, and so on. You're doing all yep. of the museums. For those who can't kind of get why that's a big deal and why people don't tend to do that, how visitor-friendly would you say the whole region is? And that's, that's not to say that transport links aren't good, because they are. You can get very easily to Brenla Lode, get very easily and cheaply to Waterloo uh, from Brussels. But in terms of from there, moving on to these key locations, how easy would you say it is? And what tips would you would you give people? Gareth. Oh, OK. Um, well, to be perfectly honest, unless you've got your own transport, it is not brilliant. Uh, yes, there are trains to Waterloo and Brain-la-Lude, which is close by. But then you try and get any form of vehicle to take you from there as I know you've had a situation recently, Zach, with sort of uh, trying to get from the station to the actual battlefield. It's only a few miles, but it can be incredibly difficult to get there. Uh, buses can also move down there, but that's Waterloo. As soon as you start talking about Catrebra and Ligny, there is virtually nothing. If you haven't got your own transport, you're wasting your time. It's too far to walk. And, you know, you literally, you'd, that's no, there's no other way of doing it. Um, and in those situations, realistically Catrebra is becoming a difficult battlefield to actually to actually show because it is becoming extremely built up it is very busy um and it, you know we've had to work hard at finding locations to actually show the battlefield with any sense of being able to do so over the traffic noise etc uh Ligny is a sprawling battlefield which is a problem has a very good museum but other than that a few locations and other than that it's quite difficult again but you can get a feel for those battles from picking the right spots um waterloo is as to say is different but it still has its own problems in the sense of you know you that it's it's all centered around that spot on the battlefield and it, and it always has been unfortunately ever since the mound was built and the buildings around it that has become the focal point of everything that everyone goes to and getting them to 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 walk further afield, and it's not that far. I mean, half a half a mile or so, or three quarters of a mile, you're across the battlefield, and you get a very different perspective of it. But very few people do it, and you know, it, as I'm saying, it's it's. But at least with Waterloo, you still, despite as I said, that little bit of ground which has been messed about with, you know, the the great part of the battlefield is virtually what it was and you can really feel for it and understand what went on. And that's, that's the great thing, but, but certainly the other two are a bit more challenging. Absolutely. Um, and it's worth saying folks that if you are going to try and do it under your own steam, I would urge you to go with the tour guide, but if you are going to do it under your own mm. steam, um, 
you're going to find that there are places where you can't take a car if you're going to try and do it really properly yourself and put all the maps down and believe me having worked it all out it took me a, a solid fortnight with maps and so on to try and work out exact locations and all the rest of it and cross-reference um, if you're going to do that you will get there and find that actually you can't drive on all of these roads because they're private property or they're, they're just not passable because they're dirt tracks not proper roads so be prepared to walk and take some serious serious walking shoes with you you know your standard trainer or flip-flops are not going to cut it you will suffer <laughs> for it um this has been yeah, fantastic so, yeah, yeah, we'll see on that zach is that um you can still do i wouldn't like to frighten people off who are, are not able to walk mm. as much yeah that's, um i'm certainly we will be looking at this is that we will have a a bus with us that's moving us around and obviously even when you're doing the walk you can actually if needs be take people to the next location that we're going to talk and they don't have to walk it because not everybody has got the ability to do all that walking so you know i don't want to frighten people off in that way either and say that you know alternatives are available but clearly you're right there are places you can't get to but certainly there are enough places you can get to yeah that Absolutely. means that people can enjoy the thing without actually thinking, oh, if I can't walk, you know, 10 miles in a day, it's not worth <laughs> doing it. Well, no, yeah. That's not no. true. Yeah. I mean, if I walk Christine for 10 miles in a day, I think it will probably be killing her. Um, so we won't be doing that. You know, it'll only be a few miles with lots of stops. And I say, and, and we can also step, get people to go on a bus, go to that next stop, and we can meet them there if they want to. Uh, yeah, it's okay. You don't get all of the feeling for it, but you get 99% of it. And I think, you know, it's just important to bring that in. No, I'm glad you, you did make that point. And um, what I would say, just to caveat what I've said, folks, is that, I'm somebody who who can't walk long distances. If you make me walk for a solid half hour at the end of it, I'm going to be screaming expletives in your ear, um, such as such partly my nature, but also um, how, how my body kind of functions. So you can do it. Absolutely, you can. And it's important that you, you emphasise that, Gareth. So thank you. Um, but be prepared for this idea that it's not going to be plain sailing. And therefore, you want the expertise with you because you want people who've wrecked the ground, who've worked out where are the locations to get the maximum impact. And then you will get the proper appreciation in the smallest amount of time without rushing things, but also kind of maximizing your time out there. Yeah. Gareth, Christine, this has been an absolute joy. We're going to put the link to your tour in the description to this episode. The first one goes out in early September. You guys are back in time for War and Peace 2, which is fantastic mm -hmm. news. I look forward to yes. hopefully seeing you there. Um, hashtag ad folks. More details on that from the Napoleon from Revolutionary War Graves charity website coming very soon. Um, but crucially, because we need to emphasize that, you know, we're here to talk about your tour. This won't be the only one. So what's the plan beyond September? When are you guys going out again? We haven't discussed it. What do you think, Gareth? I don't know. Well, we have. All we've done is we've sort of said that uh, we would obviously like to do this again, possibly annualize it, or if there's more interest, we can do more. But I'm certainly up for it. Um, Christine is, uh, you know, very Always. interesting doing so because uh, obviously it's her company as such. But you know, and obviously there's there's always the opportunity to do others. Um, you know, I have, for example, done a very successful and very interesting tour around Copenhagen for five days, uh, looking at the 1801-1807 uh, 
actions. And, you know, I would love to do that again. So there's plenty of other areas for us to look at in the future if there's any interest behind it. We will discuss. Absolutely. So, folks, I would emphasize, check out the website. If you've got something particular in mind, get in touch. You know, this idea that Absolutely. tour guides aren't going to do anything other than what's advertised isn't necessarily the case. Bespoke tours can be put together. Obviously, there are overheads attached with that. But if you've got an enthusiasm and you want to go out with these guys, ask the questions and you'd be amazed um, at what the answers can sometimes turn out to be. Gareth, Christine, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. Please do come back again sometime very soon. Uh, and thanks thank for your time you, today. I, I look forward oh, to you. seeing you at the conference in September in London. Hello again, folks. Yes, I know the usual ever so slightly tedious begging letter. As always, please remember to like and subscribe. Little things that make a colossal difference. It's the algorithm that drives how widely these episodes are spread and your inclination to like the posts on social media, Facebook, Twitter and so on. That willingness to hit the share button, to take that link and copy it into your own social media feeds, those are the kinds of things that make a colossal difference in terms of wider reach and bringing in new people who can enjoy this show. And if you're enjoying it, then it would be great for other people to share that enjoyment with you. So please do take the time to spread the word. I'm conscious that a number of people who with the best one in the world I don't even know are being very kind and doing that kind of thing. If you're one of those, then believe me, heartfelt thanks to you. Um, those of you who aren't, if you can spare the time, please do. It you know it takes a, a few seconds and a little bit of electricity. It makes a massive difference. Um, but the most important thing, there's a subscribe button. Just whack that and then you'll be able to get live updates whenever the next episode goes out. As you know, this is a show that endeavours to run on a shoestring budget, so if you are willing and able to contribute, either as a one-off um, or as something kind of more regular, please know that it makes a massive difference. All the funds get reinvested, so none of this is about lining my own pocket. It's all about how can we kind of build the show and uh, look to provide fresh content, um, but also more diverse content. So the big thing that I'm looking at for the future is how to launch a YouTube channel successfully and considering some kind of live stream capability and what that might or might not look like. No promises at this stage. The other thing I would say is that if you want more content, if you're able to um, uh, contribute to the, the Patreon scheme, it does help in terms of trying to reach that goal of ultimately going weekly. That is what I would like to do. Have one of these go out every single week, 52 in a year, but these are huge investments of time even when an episode isn't four hours long, like some of the ones you've had recently, it it takes a, a good four hours per episode, absolute minimum, probably close to six in terms of editing and, and preparation and recording time and so on and so forth. Obviously, I am sitting here playing the world's smallest violin, but if you enjoy the show and if you would like more content, please do consider whether or not you're able to contribute. I know times are hard. Um, there are links in the description. Go to Patreon if you're considering um, something regular on a, on a monthly basis. The idea with that is that there are different tiers. They start at £1 a month, um, go up all the way up actually to uh, £25 a month for those who are insanely generous. Um, and you get different perks within each tier. So you can get shout-outs within episodes. You can get one-to-one -one meetings with me. 
voting rights to determine themed months. Uh, Marshall patrons, for example, can actually demand episodes. Um, so if any of that is of interest to you, please do consider uh, whether or not you would like to become a patron. Equally, a one-off tip can be made via Ko-fi. Um, and whatever support you're able to offer, I am massively grateful, as I'm sure you know. A particular shout-out to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser, and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, and Rachel Stark. My Commander patrons, John Haynes, Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest, and Graham Swydenbank. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Miles Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Cothlan, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson, and Graham Goodwin. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.